You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, and this is actually the traditional text for today on the church calendar. So a lot of your higher church traditions as they're known, your Episcopalians, your Anglicans, maybe your Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans, whatever, your more liturgical traditions follow what's called the lectionary. And today's text in the lectionary is Mary's Song, this third Sunday of Advent, or as it's also known, the the Magnificat. But this is Mary's Song from Luke 1, and the background of this is Mary in the story, in the nativity story, has just arrived at her cousin Elizabeth's house. Mary is, of course, pregnant with Jesus, and Elizabeth is pregnant herself with John the Baptist, and upon arriving at Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth sees her walk through the door and exclaims with joy, shouts with joy to Mary, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary, overcome with joy herself, replies to Elizabeth with this, um, says this or sings this. Here it is. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forevermore. It's interesting, the word Advent means the arrival, or the coming of something. To be in a season of Advent as we are now means to be waiting and longing and hoping with eager expectation for the arrival or the coming of something, namely, of course, the arrival of God. And that can mean different things to different people, right? For Mary, the kind of the season of Advent she was in and her contemporaries were in, the kind of God they were hoping and waiting for, is this God who, in her own words, scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. They were hoping and longing for a God who will lift up the lowly and bring the powerful down from their thrones. She says, a God who will fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. This is the kind of God they were hoping and longing for. This was the season of Advent she and her contemporaries were engaged in. The question is, what is the kind of God we're hoping and longing for? What is the, the God, I guess, we're celebrating, the nativity we're celebrating? What, what kind of God are we longing for and celebrating this Christmas season? Notice she makes no mention in this song of any kind of longing for the afterlife or anything like that. No mention of the afterlife here. And she's not longing for heaven, is she? She's not longing for treasures on high and everlasting rewards and glory. 
She's not longing with eager expectation for God to forgive her of her sins so that she can dodge his wrath and miss out on hell and make heaven one day. No, that, that, that kind of understanding of the gospel was completely alien and foreign to her and her contemporaries. She and her contemporaries were longing and hoping and waiting for a God of justice, a God who will show up in the social structures of their world and establish his will and ways. They were hoping and longing for a Messiah, a God who will show up and establish justice and peace, a God who will bring down the mighty from their thrones, a God who will lift up the lowly, a God who will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, a God who will fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away, the Jeff Bezos of the world, away empty. That's the, that's the season of Advent they were in. That's who they were looking forward to seeing. That's what the nativity meant to them. Whose nativity are we celebrating? What kind of God are we looking forward to? I have a colleague and a friend named Emmy Kegler, who's a Lutheran pastor up in Minneapolis. She's something of a troublemaker, which is why I like her. Uh, she tweeted this recently, and I think this is a great take on the nativity and the Christmas story. If you ignore the witness of teenage girls, if you tell refugees, go back where you came from, if you close your doors to dirty field laborers, if you would turn a child over to a tyrant, please don't put up a nativity this year. <laughs> I love that. She captured, Bob, please leave that up on the screen for a few minutes. She captures the heart of the nativity story and the Christmas message quite well here. And obviously she's using the nativity story to address contemporary political issues like immigration and the Me Too movement, right? But it works because the nativity story in its original context, the nativity story in its original context was also a piece of social commentary. The fact that God chose a peasant nobody like Mary, the fact that shepherds, dirty field laborers who were considered ritually unclean back then because they worked with animals, the fact that they were chosen to appear at his birth the fact that even as a baby, Jesus was deemed a threat to the political establishment. King Herod wanted him dead. All of this was meant by the gospel writers as a critique of power. A critique of power and a comprehensive message about how God was overturning the political social, economic, and religious order of things, no aspect of the world order was to be left unchanged or untouched by the inbreaking of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This was the nativity. It's amazing to me that I grew up in the church, attended church twice a week, Wednesdays and Sundays, my entire life, my young life, I guess, it's amazing to me that it was in my 30s that I first heard this understanding of the gospel, that I went to church my entire childhood, adolescence, and even young adult life, and I never heard this understanding of the gospel. Never once did I hear this understanding of the Christmas story. I heard, I was in seminary. I had to go to seminary to get this. I heard countless Christmas sermons over the years, and all of them seem to be about the same thing, that we as Christians can have joy at this time of year. We can find joy in the coming of the Christ child because God sent his son to earth to save us from our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. 
that was the Christmas story. If you would have asked me, I'm 43 now, if you would have asked me, you know, before I went to Fuller, so we're talking, <laughs> thinking out loud here. If you, if you would have asked me probably in my, in my early 30s what the message of Christmas was, it was that God sent his son to earth to die for our sins so we can go to heaven and not have to go to hell. And that's the joy of Christmas. That's the joy, I thought, of the Christ child. We get to go to heaven. Our relationship with God has been repaired. My personal relationship with God, right? My personal. I get to go to heaven. I don't have to go to hell. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's what I thought the Christmas story was all about. But no, it's this. It's this other thing we're talking about, Mary's song. But it makes sense why I believe why so many of us believed that was the Christmas story, that otherworldly understanding of it. When you're a wealthy, powerful, and privileged culture, it makes sense. Well, you know, why would you want to think that the Christmas story is a critique of wealth and power and privilege? If you're a wealthy and if you're part of a wealthy, powerful, and privileged culture, why would you read the gospel as a critique of wealth, power, and privilege? Why would you do that? Why would you want to read it as anything other than good news? for you and people just like you. White, affluent, middle-class Americans, right? And so the Christmas story has been hijacked, emptied of its original meaning, and the implications for this are manifold. I'm reminded of Andre Henry when he was here a month ago, talked about how he's heard numerous times from Christians, pastors no less, that racism is just not that important of a priority to God. Racism is just not a priority for God. And social justice in general, I've heard this from colleagues, pastors, educated pastors, that social justice in general just really isn't that much of a priority to God because that's not what the gospel's about. The only reason why Christians would, would say such a ridiculous thing it's because their understanding of the incarnation is really an otherworldly thing. Jesus came to earth essentially to save us from our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die so that we don't have to go to hell. It's really, the, the, the gospel is really an otherworldly thing. It's about getting to go someplace else. It's not so much about this life and this world and God meeting us here and, and helping us address the problems, the social, political, whatever problems here and now. It's about getting to go somewhere else when we die. That's the implications of that otherworldly understanding of the gospel. It divests us of any care or concern or any responsibility to each other, any kind of moral responsibility to each other here and now. It's about someplace else. The gospel is about what Mary's song is about. This bringing down the mighty from their thrones and God lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. It's about this radical reversal of the world's social orders. Now some would hear this this morning. I mean, this is not the first time I've presented a message like this. Some would hear this social justice gospel and say, congratulations, pastor. You have emptied the gospel of all of its supernatural, spiritual, and mystical meaning. You've essentially converted the gospel into nothing more than a public service announcement about love and justice. You've reduced it to simply Marxism, socialism. I've heard these critiques, you can tell. Uh, you've, you've reduced it to nothing more than a political philosophy. 
You've reduced Christianity to essentially Marxism, political philosophy, emptied it of anything supernatural, spiritual, or mystical. I've heard, I've heard these critiques. But I don't think that this reading has to take away anything mystical or spiritual from our understanding of the gospel. In fact, I think it's actually the means by which we connect to the sacred and the transcendent. For me, a social justice understanding of God, let me put it like this, a social justice understanding of Christianity is a mystical and spiritual understanding of Christianity. An understanding that locates God right here and right now in the fabric and in the material circumstances of our lives. Last week I talked about how I no longer have a dualistic understanding of God, how I no longer am a dualist, right? Meaning I no longer think that God is a being somewhere up there, the way I was raised to think, an old man in the sky, right? God's somewhere up there. I no longer think in this binary, in this two-world split, that God is a being somewhere up there and we're down here. No, no, no. I think the gospel and Christianity is about how God is incarnated right here, right now in the material circumstances of our lives. There is no two-world split. The physical is spiritual. The transcendent is imminent. The sacred is actually the mundane, this material world. The divine is human. There is no separation. There is, again, we, we, have, we think in this binary that there's a spirit world and a physical world. No, I think the gospel is this radical presentation that the spiritual is physical. There is no separation between the material and the immaterial. And so I talked about last week, and we'll briefly touch on this because it bears repeating, that I'm what you might call a panentheist. Pan and theist. Pan meaning all, n meaning within, theist meaning God, all within God. And I used an illustration to kind of help us think about that. Imagine a boat, a ship, sunk in the ocean. It's sitting on the ocean floor. The ocean is God. We are the ship. It's not that the, the ocean is not the ship and the ship is not the ocean, right? They're two separate things, but the ship is enveloped by the ocean and even contains within its hull a small portion of the ocean. It's filled up with the ocean because it's immersed it's sitting on the ocean floor, right? This is how I think of God. Here and now, we are immersed in the divine and the sacred and the holy and the transcendent. Here and now, no separation, no two-world split, no dualism, and for me, this is a very Christian conception of God, perhaps the oldest Christian conception of God. I'm reminded of Paul in Acts 17, saying, in him we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and move and have our being. Within the holy, the sacred, the divine, we live and move and have our being. This is a Christian conception of God. And to be clear, I say all this to say I see a lot of overlap between this understanding of God and a God of social justice. I want to present that to you this morning as a place of reconstruction, perhaps. <coughs> you don't have to share my metaphysics, all right? But this is a potential for reconstruction. I understand, my understanding of God, this understanding I'm presenting, this panentheism I'm presenting, is absolutely overlaps with this God of social justice, a God who is radically present in this world, a suffering God, a crucified God, a God who is literally the hungry and thirsty among us, as Jesus says in Matthew 25. Jesus didn't just say, I am among or I'm somehow present, 
with the, with the hungry and the thirsty and those in prison and those sick. No, he said, I am. I was the hungry person you fed. I was the thirsty person you gave water to. I was the one who was sick that you took care of. I was the one in prison that you visited. I was the stranger that you welcomed. No, no separation. Only this God is truly a God of love and justice in my mind. A distant and far removed deity, a God who is located somewhere out there in the ether, you know, tucked away in the safety and comfort of heaven, looking down on us with pity perhaps. This is quite a different God than the God, than the imminent God revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth the imminent and incarnated God revealed in him. So I no longer think of God as a being on high, but a divine and sacred dimension to this life, this world, our lives as they actually are. I think of God as divine and sacred dimension to this here and now, not, not as a being on high. And for me, this is the ultimate meaning of the nativity and the incarnation. This is the idea in John's gospel as we talked about last week, of the, of the divine logos. The divine logos entering into history. The divine logos being in, enfleshed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The divine logos entering into history. The divine logos stepping into space-time. And perhaps the deepest meaning of this is that in order for God to truly be God, God had to become human. Think about that. Perhaps the real depth, the meaning of the nativity, the incarnation, is that in order for God to truly be God, God had to become human. The nativity shows us that God had to become part of this world. God had to become human. To put it another, another way, God cannot be God without us. Just as God needed Mary to give him birth give him life. So God needs us to give him life. God cannot be God without us. We must give God birth. We, we have to make her real. Otherwise, God cannot truly be God, or perhaps God cannot exist at all. Not in any meaningful way. Perhaps the deepest meaning of the Advent, of Advent, is not so much about us longing and hoping for God to show up and save today, but God is hoping and longing that we show up and save the day. I believe God is observing a season of Advent where she is hoping and longing, praying even, waiting with eager expectation that we would be her hands and feet in the world. God is observing a season of Advent as she hopes and longs for us to become the body of Christ, the risen Savior, the incarnate logos of divine love. I'm saying nothing new here. Christian mystics since the Middle Ages, like Meister Eckhart, the 13th century, were saying stuff like this. And they got in a lot of trouble for it, but think about why they said it. Why is this such an important idea? It is about calling us into a more meaningful way of life, where we fully invest ourselves in the affairs of this world and take our responsibilities to each other seriously, we take our eyes off of heaven and we put them squarely on the earth and on each other and work to alleviate the suffering around us.
The point is to affirm God's presence in the world as a way of affirming life in its depths. To say that God is here and now, to say that God is enfleshed, to say that the sacred and divine is a dimension of the here and now is a way of radically affirming life. It is to, to communicate like this, to speak theologically like this, is a way of saying yes. It's a way of shouting yes to life. Do you hear that? The, to talk about God being here and now, the incarnation, the nativity, a sacred and divine dimension to now, is a way of shouting yes to life. That's really what it's about. Yes to life, despite all of its difficulties, all of its frailty, all of its troubles we shout yes to life and say that there is a divine and sacred dimension here now. Christ is with us. God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why this is so important. This, incar this incarnational understanding of God is deeply mystical. This social justice understanding of God is deeply mystical. Absolutely mystical. So just because we read the Gospels and passages like Mary's song as a social justice message does not mean that we've divested it of anything mystical or spiritual. Rather, quite the opposite. We have only deepened its mystical and spiritual dimension. This is actually the very means by which we connect to the sacred and the divine. Our own scriptures tell us God is love. Think about that. First John. God is love. Period. God is love. If you want to connect to God, connect to love. It's that simple. If you want to connect to something sacred and transcendent, connect to love. If you want a sense of being connected to the absolute, to the ultimate, connect to love. And love is such a loaded term, right? But when I speak of love, I'm not just talking about justice or compassion or empathy. It's more than that. I mean it as a way of, of looking at the world in a way that is full of gratitude and appreciation and that takes nothing for granted. I'm talking about appreciating life's little pleasures and enjoyments like having a meal with a friend, watching a good movie, going on a walk in a garden. By love, I mean the love of life itself. I think in order to actually truly love others and be a person who is orientated towards justice, one has to love life itself as, as well. I think quite often the most hateful and unkind people are also people that have a kind of miserable outlook in, on life in general. You ever met somebody like that? And likewise, the most beautiful, the most kind and gracious people are also those who tend to have a zest for life they have a love for life. They, they don't take anything for granted. They appreciate even the little things. To love others, you have to love life itself. To truly love others in a Christ-like way. To be a person of justice and empathy. I think we have to have a kind of zest for life, a, a deep appreciation of the simple things, and to see a kind of sacred and divine dimension, even in the simple things. Simple acts of joy. This is the kind of love I'm talking about. To connect to that kind of love is to connect to God, is to connect to the sacred, the divine, the transcendent, whatever you want to call it, the ineffable. Whatever else you think about God, however you understand God metaphysically as a being or just as an energy or just a, a sacred and divine dimension to life, doesn't really matter to me. 
If, if, if for you, God is all powerful or, or limited in power or God has no supernatural power whatsoever, doesn't really matter to me. However you conceive of the metaphysics of God doesn't really matter to me because I think regardless of how you think of God or don't think of God, the way we all connect to the sacred and divine dimension, the transcendent dimension of life is through love. The love of life and the love of others. 1 John 4 tells us, anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This, this John guy would be a progressive Christian and labeled a heretic today, I'm convinced. Anybody who talks like this, right? You Post on Facebook today, just that line. Anybody who loves, anybody who loves knows God and is born of God. See what your conservative friends and family think of that, <laughs> right? Anybody who loves knows God and is born of God, for God is love. One could say that the nativity is really about the incarnation of love itself. If God is love, and if God somehow, somehow was incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, then Jesus is the incarnation of love itself in all of its dynamism. So the gospel is not just this social justice message. It's not political philosophy. No, this is, this is the very means by which we connect to the divine, the transcendent. This is the mystical depth of Christianity as well. This is how we connect to God. The social justice message is absolutely a mystical message. Let's pray. God of love and truth, we ask that we might be filled with your spirit as a ship laying on the ocean floor is filled with the sea. Fill us with the knowledge of your love. Give us a deeper appreciation for our lives and the simple joys and pleasures therein. But make us into your hands and feet. Turn us into vessels of your love, your justice, your peace, your hope. Now and forevermore. Amen. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Obviously, I agree with you about the, the reading of the message of Jesus, but what are we supposed to make of how much that message has failed, right? That I saw uh, somebody post this, and I checked the math because I thought it couldn't possibly be right, but it was that if you were immortal and you were given $10,000 a day from the day Jesus was born to the present day, every single day for 2,000 years, you would still have less total money than Jeff Bezos makes in a year. Uh, <laughs> and so... In, in one year. Right, in one year. And you, I mean, you think about how much $10,000 would change your life if you got it today. 
and then you got it tomorrow and the next day and the next day for 2,000 years, you'd still have less money than the second richest man in the world makes in one year. And, you know, it strikes me that we've never had in the history of humankind this kind of extraordinary disparity in wealth and living conditions. Uh, and, and so as much as I want to agree with the purpose of the message, it, it's hard to wrestle with the fact that 2,000 years after that message, you know, being incarnated, we have failed so dramatically to put it into play. The world is more unequal now than when Jesus came ostensibly to, you know, make things more equal at a time that even then was uh, unfair and it's only gotten worse? That's a great question. Absolutely. Um, I heard somebody answer this recently. I forget a very similar question to that, not that specific question involving Jeff Bezos. Um, did I mention Jeff in my sermon? I think I mentioned, yeah, yeah. It was, that's right, it was Kester. Kester's a friend of ours, yeah. Um, I, the answer I liked, and it's not, let me be perfectly honest up front with you, Colin, you know that there isn't an answer for that, really, that's going to satisfy us. But the answer that I found satisfactory is the difficult answer, but it's also very gospel-based. You know, the gospel ends with Jesus, of course, being crucified, right? And this moment where people realize, you know, his followers who thought that he was going to deliver them from Rome, that ultimately he failed. He failed. I mean, that was, this, that, that, that was sort of like the main realization that ultimately their, their hope and expectations for a God who would deliver them from Rome, the, materials, the, ma the most major material problem of their life, didn't, didn't happen. And perhaps the meaning is that Rome always wins. We're crucified. I mean, think about the early Christian experience. It was all people who were suffering and poor, and many of them lost their lives under the Roman imperial cult, the persecution therein, Right? And yet they found hope in this kind of resistance, this, this idea that, yeah, Rome might win overall, but fuck that. We're going to resist anyway. We'll take a stand. We'll bear witness. And maybe us in a little community like, you know, the church was, we'll, we'll do it right or we'll be better. Not that we'll do it right. Perfect. You know, I, I think ultimately... You know, we, we, we keep a hope for larger change, larger systemic change, but we also do better one-on-one -on -one together, like in my personal relationships. But you're absolutely right to say, right, here we are 2,000 years later, where's the redemption? Where is it? And maybe the truth of the gospel is that ultimately, you know, in, in a way it fails, but in a way it also succeeds. It's kind of both, you don't, it's not, you know, the, cru the crucifixion and the resurrection aren't to be understood as, you know, separate things. They're two sides of the same coin. I, you know, I, it's a mystery to me in some ways, you know, I don't wanna get too far down that rabbit trail, but you're absolutely right to point out that ultimately Rome does win, the empire does win, the wealthy, you know, will always, unfortunately, grind down the weak, right? And the Jeff Bezos in the world will always be there to exploit. But there was always also a response. And, and the response is coming you know, from people like us and, and the exploited. And, and, and perhaps we can get a sliver, just a sliver, a, a sliver of change, a sliver of hope. And perhaps that looks like us changing the way that we live with each other on a small scale. I don't know, Colin, that's the best I can do. 
but you're absolutely right to point it out, and I think the gospel's really honest about what you're saying. Um, yeah, Andrew. Oh, I'm sorry, who was, yes, yes, sir. Hi, my name's Rick. Hey, Rick. I, I, um, I understand the, the um, math. It sounds crazy, but Jesus didn't hate rich, rich people. And he didn't say money is evil. He said love of money is evil. So I don't know Jeff Bezos' heart. I think to vilify him is kind of trivial because he, I don't know what he's doing with his money. And a major theme of the gospel is blessed to be a blessing. Now, I'm not saying Jeff Bezos is blessed by God. I don't know any of that stuff. But I'm just saying, if you take that to its logical conclusion, why would God bless people and give them means unless it was designed to bless other people? So vilifying the rich yes there's more disparity than ever that's a natural consequence of the evolution of humans but i think that puts the um it changes our gospel into we have to make sure everybody's not wealthy and if they are we have to vilify them i just think that's cheap i would disagree i appreciate that thank you rick um i would i would disagree with well, obviously I do because you heard my message. <laughs> um, I, I think the gospel, I, I, I think you're right to point out, well, define rich, uh, first of all, right? What does it mean to be rich? In, in a lot of ways, many of us, just for simply being middle class, are far more better off than 90% of the rest of the world. So let's be honest, you know, this message uh, is for all of us. It's not just for Jeff Bezos. But uh, to be perfectly honest, I think Jeff Bezos is incredibly guilty of exploiting the poor. And I don't want to get on to the new one. I mean, uh, 500,000 factory employees making minimum wage, not making living wage. Well, he makes more money than God, I think, is morally reprehensible. I do. Well, it's, 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 it's somewhat of a different issue, but it's also very much the same. You know, Lazarus, uh, remember the, the, poor, the parable about Lazarus and the rich man? And the scriptures say that Lazarus went to paradise because he got evil things in this life, and the rich man went to Hades because he had good things in this life. You know, Jesus was, I think, I, I think you're right to point out that we can't, you know, demonize the rich to the extent that everybody who has more money than me is evil and stuff like that. But I do think the Gospels are very, very concerned about social justice, more than we've been taught in evangelical circles. And it makes sense why, because evangelical circles are generally made up of the affluent middle class and people who are in very privileged positions. But the Gospel is a, is a radical call for those with privilege and power to use their privilege and power and wealth to help the poor. And that's really what we're saying here. This isn't about like if your bank account is more than mine, that you're evil but it is a radical call to change the way that we live. Um, I, I don't want to go further than that. I've, I appreciate you know, your comment, but I've responded. Um, Andrew, I think you were next. I, yeah, I, Bob, please, yeah. Yeah, I think this stuff's always super sensitive, right? And that's one of the things that we always try to do is handle things that are complicated. That's why we do these discussions, which is amazing. As we're talking about this, I think it's helpful to like, zoom out a little further and look at the overall narrative of what the gospel is doing through and through. Because it sure, it, it impacts our finances. It impacts what it means for us to have wealth. But at the end of the day, that's still a question of privilege. And if nothing else, the gospel challenges those of us who are in places of privilege to use our privilege on behalf of those who don't have. Um, and so as this is a community where we will continually 
look to take our privilege wherever we have that to elevate and lift up the voices of the marginalized and the oppressed when you know we call ourselves allies of the LGBTQIA community because of the marginalization of this group in our culture. Um, we say Black Lives Matter because we watch the marginalization and the hurt and abuse. And it doesn't mean that everything's easy or that there's not complexity in all of these issues. But I think similarly in wealth, when we have it, embodying the hope of love in the world is about using that privilege in a way that elevates others, um, which is scary and sounds Marxist and socialist and all kinds of things, but it's more than just finances, and that's kind of sometimes helps me think about the financial aspect of it. Sure, okay, thank you. Yeah, Andrew. Um, I had a, originally had another point, but I'll just use that as a footnote. I, I kind of <laughs> wanted to say something else about this. Uh, this whole situation, the Bezos conversation, uh, it reminds me of the story of Zacchaeus. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he was known for exploiting everybody that he came into contact with, and he hoarded his riches, and then... Um, but he was fascinated by the message of Jesus, and then when Jesus approached him, um, I don't I don't remember all of the like exact text and nuances of the story, but I do remember he was transformed to the level of he made his wrongs right by paying back those by he paying stole, back stole those from he tenfold. exploited by paying them back tenfold. Yes. And so I see that. And Jesus as, responded and said, salvation has come into this house today. Exactly. So I think that, like, I don't know, again, all the nuances of what Jeff Bezos is doing. I know he presents himself as, like, this super liberal, like, yeah, I give my money away and stuff. But we see the fruits of what he's doing, like Aaron said, by exploiting all of his workers. I know personally people who work for Amazon who don't have health insurance, who can't, like, can, can barely support themselves. Um, and I, it's not an easy fix, as we said, but I do think that if he was doing something more readily, like, more to alleviate this issue, um, I feel like we would be hearing about it, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's, like, making changes as we speak. I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about this his like day-to-day -day life to know about this. Well, but. and, and Be Bezos is an easy target. Um, yeah. but really, the problem is capitalism. Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother conversation yeah. <laughs> too, because I would disagree with that personally. Okay. But all right, that's another that's another issue. Anyways, uh, but my an, an initial issue on the topic of the gospel was I would really encourage everybody to check out this book I read recently. Uh, it's by Philip Pullman, who's like an avid atheist, um, but he wrote this story called um, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. Oh yeah, I heard about that. It's a fascinating book. It basically, uh, it fictionalizes the story of Jesus as though Jesus and Christ are two twin brothers, and one of them is concerned with the social situation, the poor, and 
like helping everything immediately around him. And the other one is not a bad person, so to speak, but he's like trying to think long-term. He's like, we could make this into a worldwide movement. <laughs> and so Jesus resents Christ because he's like, you're missing the point the whole time. And it's just a fascinating dynamic to see these two like kind of opposed forces um, that are somewhat representative of what we see in the Gospels, but a lot of the Christ, quote-unquote, aspect is the hijacked religious yeah. part of that. that so really I just good. recommend people checking it out. It's an easy read. I think it's like 100 pages or something. It's almost like a novella, but it really, like, it spoke to me really deeply. So Thanks, check Andrew. it out. Thanks. Uh, yes, okay, we got two hands over here. So we'll go Dorian and then Colin. We got just a, a few minutes left. Um, I don't think I have an intellectual response, but an emotional response. Yeah, sure, buddy. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe demographics, you know, social, you know, where you where you are socially, so to speak. Maybe all that aside, maybe intention should be the key on how we move forward as a society, because you know, rich people and poor people, you know, despite the disparity, there are rich people who do try to do good for the community. There are poor people who do try to do good, not just for their own community, but for other communities. And then you have poor people and rich people who don't bother doing that. You have minorities who demonize white people just because they're white. You have, and that's vice versa. And I guess in all this to say, there's, it's, for me, nothing is black and white. For me, there's always a complicated, it's always complicated. There's always, just because I am in agreement with a voice, a movement, doesn't mean that I necessarily agree with everything that's going on with that. And everybody's fighting for a cause, but more than likely everybody's got a different agenda within that cause. And so I think as if, and to be honest, we're all consumers. If we really wanna stop something, we could probably do a better job of not taking part consumerism, not taking part in this, in social injustice, you know, instead of just saying, man, this sucks about life, or this is unfair about life, maybe we should actually do something about it. Kind of like the change starts with me, take out the plank in my own eye before I take out the splinter in somebody else's. I think so, because I think, okay. you know, we have a lot of hypotheses and how we would do things differently and who's yeah. right and who's wrong, but maybe it all starts with us and maybe we can influence other people. Yeah, I, thank you, Dorian. I think that's good. And I think it can be both. It's, not, it's not, sure. not either or, right? Thank you for that nuanced approach. And then we'll finish with Colin. We started with you. We're going to finish with you. <clears throat> so uh, I think it, it's important to... to realize how enormous a billion dollars is and what what that means morally it, particularly in the context of the christmas story and jesus's message i mean imagine you just got a really cool new suit or new clothes and you were walking past a a pool and you saw a little kid drowning you wouldn't hesitate to jump in even if you know that that's going to ruin your clothes and and you will have wasted five hundred dollars, a thousand, you know, whatever your fancy thing that you're wearing is, yeah. you do it to save that kid. And I mean, that's really the moral quandary that the world is in at this moment. I mean, people are dying literally in ways that money can solve, and each of us is complicit in some ways with that. But to put it in perspective, 
Um, roughly three to four million people die every year in the world purely from lack of clean water. Yeah. And the World Health Organization estimates that it would cost between 150 and 170 billion dollars to provide perpetual clean water to the world forever. You do it once and you have clean water. So what that means is Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates together could provide clean water to the earth forever build a new home for every homeless person in America and still have five billion dollars left each. Five billion dollars left each after ending homelessness and providing clean water for everyone on earth and saving four million lives a year. And, and so I think there is something morally twisted with a society that still allows that much wealth to exist in one place you know, they can build a new wing of a hospital. That's, that's less than, it's less of an impact to their pocketbooks than us putting a dollar in a Salvation Army bucket. And so it's, I don't mean it personally about them. I mean, obviously it's a societal sickness uh, that we idolize money in that way, but you know, we allow Jeff Bezos to exist at the cost of four million people dying from unclean water every year. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm saying we're all complicit in a, a society that yeah. permits that amount of wealth yep. to exist in one place. Yeah, yeah, and I think taking uh, our own, as you put it, our own complicitness in that is extremely important. But I love how you started by pointing out, like, we really don't understand how much a billion dollar is. It, 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 and the moral import of that kind of money, money in general. A billion dollars is really an inconceivable amount of money, and more, more than likely, our generation will live to see the first trillionaire. Our generation stands a good chance of seeing the world's first trillionaire, which, which is beyond, I mean, a billion dollars is beyond really conception. Just one billion dollars, to say nothing of hundreds of billions. There, there is a moral dimension here. You're absolutely right, and, and it's absolutely important for our generation to take this seriously and to do something about it. Absolutely, Colin, I, I, I believe that. Well, thank you so much for being here. You know, sometimes the conversations in here get a little dicey, but that's why we do it, right? We don't always agree, and that's okay, right? Um, thank you so much for being here. Uh, come on over tonight if you're interested in a Christmas party, having a few drinks with the pastor, you know? Bring, bring mac and cheese, whatever, and uh, hopefully see you next week. Go in peace. <laughs>